It's not unusual for things to be stolen from people's front porches in cities across our region. It happens all the time. We've even coined a term for the people who do it. We call them porch pirates. But that's usually for the thefts of things like Amazon packages. There are other times when thefts from front porches hit like a punch to the gut. Like the recent theft of a special wheelchair from the home of a nine-year-old girl in London. Now the story has a happy ending of sorts. The public came together to raise money for a replacement, but it shouldn't have to come to that. And that's the focus of this episode of the Blackburn News Podcast. Here's your host, Craig Needles. Imagine your nine-year-old Aaliyah Faulkner. You have cerebral palsy. You are not able to really get around or move any sort of significant distance unless you have your wheelchair. Then all of a sudden, one day, your wheelchair is stolen. London police have subsequently arrested the person allegedly responsible for this. But while the chair was in that person's possession, it was destroyed. And it can't be fixed. So what would you do? You would probably obviously look for a new wheelchair. Turns out her chair cost about $7,000. That's a lot of money for most families. Not something that you just have lying around in a bank account ready to be spent. So you ask the government for some help. Turns out that asking them for help in the current system for a mobility device like a wheelchair, in most cases can take over a year for you to get said wheelchair. So what do you do? You go to GoFundMe. And that's exactly what Aaliyah's family did, led by Haley Fair, her older sister. They raised over $11,000. That's fantastic. But should people really have to go to the public to get crowdfunding in order to get something that is a basic necessity, like a wheelchair? Here's Haley speaking with Blackburn News about the latest in her sister's pursuit of acquiring a new wheelchair. So we were actually working with York Mobility and they came to do measurements yesterday to fit her for a new chair. And they think that our wait time is about two to six weeks. Now it's always going to take some time to get a new chair, right? You have to be fitted. You have to get everything customized the way you need it. It's a complicated process. However, it doesn't need to be as complicated as the government has made it. And even when you qualify for funding and are waiting to get the chair, they only cover 75% of the cost. There are some real problems here, which is something that Haley acknowledged later in her conversation with Blackburn News. Honestly, I think it just has to do with like priorities. People don't think that this is important because it doesn't affect a lot of people. And it's It's hard to think about things that don't affect you. So the government takes forever because I don't think they realize how desperately people need this. So what do we do about this? I wanted to ask somebody who's an expert, somebody who knows that is Dr. Jeff Preston. He's a motivational speaker, a disability advocate, and a professor of disability studies at King's University College. He's a good friend of mine as well. He joins us here on the Blackburn News Podcast to discuss this issue and figure out how we can make this better. Uh, Jeff, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, Always appreciate our conversations. Absolutely. Yeah, thank you for having me. So I I was doing the interview last week, and I I was telling you about this before we started uh, rolling tape for the podcast here, with the sister of that that young nine-year-old girl who had her wheelchair stolen, which according to London police was then used in a commission of another crime. We'll we'll get into all all that Mm -hmm. later. But um, she's saying, hey, yeah, we had to launch the GoFundMe because if we had just used the government assistance programs to pay for the wheelchair or to get access to that wheelchair, last time we tried that, it took 14 months. 
Mm-hmm. That that sentence yeah. was not shocking to me necessarily because you and I have talked about this stuff before, sort of in, in, in previous gigs for me. But at the same time, I'm just like, 14 months, that just seems like a ridiculous amount of time. Is that an experience that's common for people who need that type of mobility assistance? Unfortunately, yes. Uh, and, it's, and it's a duration that's getting longer and longer. Uh, every time that I have to replace my wheelchair, uh, I've had to wait longer than the previous time, not for the wheelchair to be manufactured, not for the parts to come across the border, not for the chair to be fitted, but quite literally waiting for all of the approvals uh, in order to get the funding to pay for the actual chair itself. Uh, that, again, seems ridiculous. How is there not a system that makes more sense? How is there not a formula that gets this these chairs to these people who need them? Again, this is not some sort of uh, buying a, an extra couch or another TV. This is something that people need. When someone needs a wheelchair, they need it today. Yeah, absolutely. I think that it's it's rooted in, well, there's, there's a few things at play here. So one of the things at play is that we have actually a very complicated system in terms of how we fund the wheelchairs. So a, a majority of a wheelchair in Ontario is going to be paid by uh, the assistive devices program, uh, colloquially known as ADP. Uh, ADP covers most of, but not all of your wheelchair. So the remaining portion that's left off is either then covered in some combination of uh, privately, either just paying out of your own pocket, uh, paid out of insurance if you have private insurance, or if you're on the Ontario Disability Support Program, paid through the medical equipment piece of ODSP. So you have actually a bunch of different groups and organizations that are all interfacing with each other, but also are surprisingly poor at interfacing each other. Uh, with each other. So ADP, for instance, uh, there's no means for an average citizen to merely call up ADP to get information, to get advice, to find really anything out about it. ADP will only speak with registered occupational therapists that are on their list of basically approved ADP OTs. Uh, So it's very difficult, actually, to get information about ADP. It's a bit of a closed box if you're on the outside looking in. And then you have distributors who are building the wheelchairs, probably not in Canada, that are then being shipped in, uh, or manufacturers, sorry, that are building it, shipping to distributors who are then in the country, who are then putting everything together, getting it into the hands of therapists, and then eventually to the person. So we have all of these sort of atomized groups that are all being uh, playing an important part in the process. But you know, the more bureaucracy you have, the more layers you have, the more this thing gets dilated out. It gets slower and slower and harder and harder to access to the point now that we have massive wait lists, huge gaps in funding, and people unfortunately are now being required to do it on their own if they want to get the equipment that they need in a timely manner. Yeah, uh, that is is difficult. We'll talk about the GoFundMe aspect of this for a second, but I just have to wonder why we can't, and, and maybe this is, I'm sure it is easier said than done, but why can't we just have one agency that's responsible for this stuff as opposed to we have to go here for this and there for that and there for this and this sort of patchwork type of situation here? Because as you've said and, and have pointed out here, that kind of feels like the, the one of the big complicating factors in this situation. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I think streamlining the service would be a phenomenal thing. I think that my experience with the program, and this is purely a personal experience, uh, and I don't know how things are actually happening, again, behind some of those closed doors, but there seems to be a lot of focus on ensuring that, quote-unquote, the right people 
get the equipment. Uh, there seems to be a lot of time being spent on validating people, validating their disabilities, validating the types of equipment that they need, and not coming necessarily from a perspective of, we want to make sure we get the right tool in the right hand, but more so from this like old school philosophy that seems to believe that there are people out there who are actively trying to cheat the system. Um, I find that particularly strange in the world of like adaptive equipment because I don't know that I've ever met anyone who would pretend to be disabled purely in order to get uh, an electric or a manual wheelchair. Uh, that seems like a very foreign concept to me. Perhaps I'm naive. Uh, I just don't really see what benefit anyone re would receive uh, from quote unquote gaming the system in that way. Yeah, you, so so you wind up with a free wheelchair potentially, which for a lot of people is not that particularly useful. So like, why are no. you going through all this effort to potentially scan the system to get a free or not even a free wheelchair? Because what it pays you pay the government rather pays seventy five percent of the cost, right? Yeah, so exactly. Yeah, yeah, so you're so still for, paying a quarter of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. For for someone like myself in an electric wheelchair, high technology electric wheelchair. Uh, this wheelchair costs about $33,000. Uh, and so that 25% remaining is actually extremely high. Uh, we're not talking hundreds of dollars. We're talking thousands of dollars for a wheelchair like this. And the other side of it is that there is no resale market for these types of things because all of the sale or all of the funding is tied to it being brand new equipment. Um, so, you know, it's, it's not like that there, you know, you could go and scan the government and get a free wheelchair and then flip it on Kijiji um, because there's just not a market for that. Not really. Yeah, yeah. So why are why are there so many safeguards in place for something that uh, probably doesn't need that, at least that level of safeguards is an interesting question. But that's just a classic government thing, be it with uh, provincially ODSP, be it with Ontario Works. We make it harder than it has to be and more expensive than it has to be because, oh, wait, what if someone fakes this? It's just uh, it, it's a classic government solution to a problem that may or may not exist. Yeah. And at times it feels as though we're almost inadvertently or perhaps advertently setting up a, a two-stream system mm -hmm. in which those who have the funds to be able to pay privately get to jump the queue. Uh, so there's one system for all of us who cannot afford a $30,000 wheelchair every five years. And then there's a completely other system for those who are able to just do it out of pocket. Um, that's a tremendous advantage if you have that type of resource. But for most Ontarians, that's simply not possible. <sighs> So it's, it's frustrating. You and I, like I said, we've talked about this before for years, just sort of in my, uh, in my talk show days as far as why this has to be the way that it is. So what do you think could or should be differently if, if someone from uh, either the Ontario government, the federal government, whoever, uh, and you can tell me who you'd want to talk to most out of the people that I'm mentioning here, uh, called you up and said, okay, Jeff, what should we do with this? How can we make this better? What advice would you give and to whom would you give it? Yeah, that's, that's a great question. Uh, I, I think ultimately the first piece of advice is uh, blow up the existing system. Uh, this is a thing that does not appear to be flexible enough to be resolved by making simple alterations or changes. Uh, it feels like a system that is so deeply entrenched that it is very difficult to make any sort of change. Uh, and it's the type of system that is now making decisions today based on things that perhaps had happened previously that no longer really makes sense. So for example, uh, ADP will not pay for the lights on an electric wheelchair because that's deemed to be not, quote, mobility related. 
So even though it's a safety need, uh, and absolutely it is an increased accessibility need, because the lights do not facilitate mobility, which is the explicit point of the funding, they will not fund that part of the wheelchair. The same goes for things like elevated seats. So having the ability to raise the seat on a wheelchair to reach an upper cabinet is deemed to not be a mobility feature. Therefore, it is like a special feature, uh, even though it would greatly help out the user, even though it would go directly into things like the Ontario Disability Support Program, because of the narrow confines of the program, none of these things get funded uh, as a result. And so I think the first step we need to do is we need to pull up the system and go back to the drawing board and ask ourselves, what is the point of a wheelchair? What is the point of an electric wheelchair, of a manual wheelchair, or really any of the assistive devices that we are providing to people in this world? If we start to go from the position that adaptive devices are not just about one thing, it's not just about mobility, but it's about access, it's about freedom, uh, it's about being able to get around, to move around, to engage within the system, I think that fundamentally changes what we are thinking of funding and how we're thinking to fund it. Now, you mentioned this question about who would I talk to, and I know obviously here in Canada, we have some very lovely debates uh, about federalism and the rights of provinces and who should get a say in what, and typically, obviously, healthcare-related things fall under the purview of provinces. But what we see if we look from province to province in Canada is we have radically different approaches on how we manage, uh, deliver, um, and, and service wheelchairs for people, depending on what province you're living in. Meaning that when I look across this country, there are certain provinces that I myself personally could not live in because the way their system is set up for the delivery of wheelchairs, I wouldn't be able to get the things that I actually really need to live a full and happy and meaningful life. So what we see now is this patchwork. And that's something that I think the federal government, as they start to move forward on the Accessibility Canada Act, as they're starting to talk about things like a disability benefit, perhaps this is something that the federal government needs to say, every Canadian should have equal access to things like adaptive devices, because having those devices are actually a critical part of you being an active citizen within our country. I couldn't agree more. And I, I just I get frustrated by the fact that we have to continually make this more difficult than it is. And I, I, I look at some of the conversations we've had surrounding basic income, and I want to get your thoughts on that, which I know is a whole other podcast probably, but mm -hmm. are we in a situation where we're doing things both the expensive way and the way that is harmful to people? And I think the answer is yes. So why do we continue to do it the lousy way? That's, that, that's the frustrating part for me. And I'm sure it's the frustrating part for you. Yeah, it's, it's a question that is almost impossible to answer in some ways. I mean, I know that there's probably somebody, uh, you know, sitting at a, at a desk uh, at ADP listening to this podcast, as I assume uh, everyone is doing. Uh, and, and they're like, well, I have five reasons as to why this is X, Y, and Z. And those reasons might make a lot of sense in terms of process. It may make a lot of sense in terms of bureaucracy and rules and past practice and all of these things. However, we often think a lot more about how to design systems that are beneficial and easy 
for those who are operating the systems, as opposed to designing systems that are beneficial, easy, and useful for those who are then receiving service. Those who are actually at the end of the of the production line of the of the service. And so, you know, there are programs in Ontario or in uh, in Canada, sorry, for wheelchairs where the provincial government has said, well, we're going to only sell one wheelchair, one type of wheelchair in this province. Because then that way, everyone has the same wheelchair, so we only need one kind of service tech, because that tech will now know how to service every wheelchair, because every wheelchair is the same. But that then presumes that every wheelchair user is identical, which is, of course, not the case. These chairs are highly specialized, highly customized, because all of us have bodies that can and cannot do different things. Yeah, it's the equivalent of, hey, why don't we just make it so all the cars are Honda Civics and that way everyone knows how to fix Honda Civics. Well, you know, some mm -hmm. people want a minivan, some people want a truck, some people want a motorcycle. This is even more specialized than that. Absolutely. And 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 even more dire, right? Mm -hmm. I think people have a, have a bad habit of looking at wheelchairs in, through the lens of things like our phrase, confined to a wheelchair. Mm -hmm. We see the wheelchair as being an obstructive tool, a, a symbol of our lack, our symbol of our inability. And so we have this kind of weird relationship in that way. And then we also kind of conceive of them as they are a chair with wheels, as though they are equivalent to kind of any other chair, and therefore are kind of like furniture. Um, and so this is perhaps the reason why a total strangers will often come up behind me and will like lean on my wheelchair. Uh, or, uh, you know, a couple of years ago, I was at a London Knights game uh, and a fan from behind me was like holding the back of my chair and shaking me vigorously uh, as he was getting excited with the game, which was not the uh, sensory experience I was looking for. Uh, <laughs> shaken wildly by a complete stranger. Um, and he had no conception of that. Like he had no idea that he was even necessarily doing it, right? Like he was like, oh, like I thought I was just like holding onto a chair and shaking a chair. It's like, yeah, there's a person in this chair who feels everything that's happening to it. Yeah. And the chair then itself becomes actually a really personal, important extension of the body. Uh, you know, my chair is really a part of me. Uh, and I don't mean necessarily in the kind of like uh, philosophical kind of high head, you know, um, you know, I am one with the chair and the chair is one with me, <laughs> but quite literally, it is literally formed to my body. It drives the way that I want it to drive in a way that probably others cannot really drive it. Uh, and it, it represents me. People know me because of the chair that I drive in, in some ways. They see it, they recognize it to the point that when I am removed from my chair, if someone who hasn't seen me outside of my wheelchair before, they find that really weird looking. They're like, it's so weird to see you over here and the chair over there separated. Because I'm seen as sort of this like unified object, which is perhaps not actually that wrong because without the chair, I am very disabled. I cannot go anywhere. In fact, I can't even sit without pain without my wheelchair. And so I think we also need to have this shift where we start to acknowledge that wheelchairs are not just tools, they're not just furniture, but rather these are important, critical, deeply embedded parts of a person's identity, of a person's ability, and a person's means of, of actually navigating and interacting and interfacing within the world outside the body. 
Yeah, uh, you know, I, as you say that, and I hadn't really thought about it, but like, you know, I've I've gone to nights games with you, and I've gone out for drinks with you, and into bars and whatnot. And yeah, I hadn't thought of that. Like, what, what if if I saw you without your chair, what would it be like? And I had, it's not something that I'd really ever had concept of before because I haven't seen that. So yeah, yeah, yeah. it's weird. People yeah. find it very strange. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Uh, uh, before we wrap up, do, do you think that when we talk about the basic income conversation, I know that sometimes people say, hey, wait, if we do basic income, those with disabilities might be left behind here. This is a, mm-hmm. a potential problem. Is that a concern that you have? Do you think that there is a solution within basic income that would help expedite the wheelchair process uh, for, for the acquisition of those chairs? Or is it a situation where perhaps if we do this, we're going to be looking at some unintended consequences? Maybe that 14 months gets even longer. Yeah, I, I think from my perspective, um, the the it all comes for me. It all comes down to how we're actually building out the the basic income program. So if we're building out a basic income program, which says, okay, so the the systems as they exist right now aren't going to remain in existence, and this is an additional program which we're adding on top of that which is already pre- provided, which is also not enough. It also needs to be improved and enhanced. Uh, I have less problems with it. Part of the problem I have with a lot of the debate and a lot of the rhetoric around basic income from a disability perspective is that a lot of these arguments are rooted in these, you know, the quote unquote efficiencies argument. Uh, this idea that we'll be able to basically shutter a bunch of programs in order to finance the expansion of the program. So in order to pay for all these new people that will be receiving the, the, the income, we will then just get rid of a bunch of things and that's how we'll make the, the books balance. I think if we come at it from that perspective, we are doomed to leave disabled people behind. That disabled people will be un, just extremely disadvantaged by this change because if we cut ODSP, we're not just cutting the woefully low monthly income, but we're also cutting people's access to absolutely dire pharmacare needs that are covered by ODSP. We're cutting people's absolutely dire need for uh, repair of adaptive devices. Um, you know, ODSP, when I was on the program, was paying for my batteries for my wheelchair, which are hundreds of dollars every few years. Um, losing those types of things is perhaps actually even more devastating than uh, the loss of the monthly income. Um, there are some people I've spoken to on ODSP that said, you know what, if we could just work and make the money, but maintain all of those benefits, I would do that in a second. Um, the income is obviously really important. People need more money to live. They need the money to pay for their rent. Absolutely. But there are a bunch of other pieces of ODSP that are vital to people being able to survive the day to day, which if we were to lose that, that's going to be a bad thing. But if we think about basic income as an additive, as something that we're actually added onto pre-existing systems, and if we start to look back at ourselves and say, okay, what have we learned during COVID-19? And I think one of the things that perhaps I hope we have learned is the ways in which by not stewarding the services that support people in crisis, the people who need support the most because the bottom has fallen out for them. If we don't service those things in the now, then we're going to be in huge trouble when massive problems happen, like a global pandemic. And so I hope that Canadians and Ontarians coming out of the pandemic are looking at this and saying, we actually have not been stewarding our social safety net very well for the last 30, 40 years. And we need to actually maybe go back to the drawing board and think about the ways in which we are not providing the means for happy 
full, meaningful lives for far too many Ontarians. And part of that is because we're not providing them with access to the services that they need, whether that be from healthcare services or to things like access to income so that they can actually afford a place to live, afford the food to eat, and be able to get themselves back on their feet. I want to ask you one question, Jeff, before we wrap up here. When you see the stories of people saying, oh, big success, we got this GoFundMe, we got it to $7,000, so this little girl can uh, can have a wheelchair again. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I get it for that family, it's a success, but does it frustrate you that that's how we're terming it and people have to sort of go to the internet and ask strangers for help to get this stuff? Yeah, I think as all things, I think this is really complex. Uh, on the one hand, I have to say, I'm I'm thrilled and, and my, my heart is full that the London community would say they heard about the situation and they're like, we're going to do what we can to make this right. Like, this is one of ours. They're, they're a Londoner and we're going to help them because they need help right now. That, I think, is a great story. And I think that's a story that's also worth telling. On the other hand, I have deep concerns about the ways in which we are starting to require people to service themselves, uh, to find their own funding sources, to use crowdfunding in order to get the things that they need, because I worry about those who then are going to be left behind, who perhaps don't have the technical abilities uh, or the social networks or the social capital in order to generate the type of crowd necessary to fund those things. I worried about people who are at the intersections uh, the intersections of disability and race, uh, disability and gender, uh, disability and religion, who may not have those same types of access that others may have in, in some of the more dominant groups. I think that when we look at uh, fairness and the fair, equitable um, distribution of, of supports and services, as soon as we go down to this kind of neoliberal individual solution, uh, we're kind of doomed to fail. Uh, We're doomed to have a bigger group of have-nots and a smaller group of haves. That, I think, is extremely worrisome, uh, particularly because it then requires the population to determine what goods, services, and needs are valid. So if it's not valid, they're not going to give money to it. But what does it mean to define something as valid? Is the need for a wheelchair valid? Londoners have agreed, yes, that absolutely is a valid need. But what about other things that people with disabilities may need or want that maybe don't align with the public's perception? Uh, This starts to get us into that kind of bioethical quandary around things like, if there were a cure for muscular dystrophy and I chose not to take it, would people still be willing to give to a GoFundMe for a wheelchair for me, simply because I chose to remain disabled? That's a very difficult question to ask. And then we now are left with a bigger question, which is, do I even have a choice then? Do I even have a choice on who I am, who I get to be, and how I live my life if I am completely bound to the meritocracy of crowdfunding? Yeah, and I really don't think that's what anybody wants. That's not what anybody should want either. Uh, Jeff, thank you so much for for doing this with us today. I really appreciate the time. Totally. Absolutely. That's Dr. Jeff Preston who is a disability studies professor at King's University College, joining us here on the Blackburn News Podcast. My name is Craig Needles. Thank you for listening. We'll talk to you next time. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Blackburn News Podcast. It was written and produced by Craig Needles. 
Remember, you can subscribe to the Blackburn News Podcast for free at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also listen at blackburnnews.com. The Blackburn News Podcast is a presentation of Blackburn Media.